Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. I'll be doing tonight's reading. Tonight's reading is Titus chapter 2. Doing good for the sake of the gospel. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. We've all come across someone who's drunk at a party and they're either a sleeper or they're an arduous. <laughs> Or something like that. That is much simpler. (laughs) I love that wisdom, Fiona. Thank you. Uh, Not to discredit anything you said, Sam. I just think that... That is a very good answer to a very simple question. (laughs) Paul's been to plenty of parties. He knows what they're like. The transformation story I love is Bilbo Baggins. Um, He starts as a shy, um, cowardly homebody, and he gets transformed into this heroic rescuer, a master thief, and a sacrificial peacemaker. John MacArthur is known as the pioneer of the Australian wool industry, a man who transformed his life from humble beginnings as a soldier. But in a recent book club discussion, we learned about his wife Elizabeth, She was also raised in humble circumstances, an orphaned farmer's daughter growing up in a small village in England. But after moving to Australia, 
In her husband's regular and long absences, she was the one who grew the farm, acquired new properties and developed a breed of sheep that would flourish in our climate. I found her story of hard work, perseverance and eventual success so inspiring. Someone whose transformation I've been struck by is that of my high school mentor, Dave Jensen. Dave is the son of the former Archbishop Peter Jensen. He was a rebel, didn't really call himself a Christian. He joined the army and was famous for drinking, fighting and womanizing. One day, after a huge hangover, he decided to listen to a sermon by John Piper titled Don't Waste Your Life. From that point on, his life changed and he realized he needed to give his life to Jesus. Then he left the army and moved to my school where he became the assistant chaplain. I remember reading the story years ago of a book called Son of Hamas. It's a story about the son of the leader and founder of Hamas. He followed in his father's footsteps through his younger years, but then met a British backpacker who introduced him to Christianity. Years later, he decided to be baptised as a Christian and fled to the USA. It's such an amazing story and one that you never would have thought of someone who could be transformed in that way. I think the original transformation story that's one of the first that anyone learns is that a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. Or maybe for you, is that tadpoles become frogs. I remember loving the book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, when I was younger, probably because it gets to eat whatever it wants. But I also love the process of metamorphosis. The reminder that how you start isn't always how you have to finish, because sometimes there is something better in store. Everybody loves a good transformation story, right? A good transformation is exciting, it's amazing, it's memorable. And then we get to chapter 2 of the book of Titus, a book all about transformation. Paul is calling for Christians to live transformed lives. But the way he describes these lives is just so boring. Paul calls for Christians to be temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith, to be busy at home, to show seriousness and soundness of speech. But, if we start to think the transformation Christ offers us is boring or weak, we're missing out. There is power in transformed character. Through this passage, God wants us to think bigger. It's as though as we read, God continues to ask us, what if your transformation was just the beginning? Let me pray and we're going to dive in together. Heavenly Father, work in us, work for us and work through us. For the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. In chapter 1, Paul instructed Titus to establish leaders in the churches around Crete. Leaders, influences that reflected the character of Christ. To trust those transformed by truth. And now at the beginning of chapter 2, he moves past expectations for leaders and starts addressing Christians generally. And while he's not completely comprehensive, he's pretty thorough. He addresses older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. And we'll walk through these groups one by one. 
From verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. I'm not exactly sure how old makes you an older man, but men with life experience should act like they have life experience. They should demonstrate calm and level-headedness and have a solidness about them in their faith, not tossed about, in their love for others, not inconsistent, in their endurance, their perseverance through struggles, steady. All the while being worthy of respect, able to set an example. I've been a Christian for 10 years and I haven't had a specific mentor in that time, but I've got to know many Christian men that I've admired and looked up to. Sometimes these men are in a position of power yet they are humble and still take time to care and listen to other people and me. They had strong faith that had been strengthened through all the experiences they had. Moving on to older women from verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Older women, women of experience, are to be reverent, I think that in the sense of having dignity, just as the older men should have dignity. There was an apparent social problem in Crete where older women were often drinking to excess. And Paul says not to be addicted, literally not to be enslaved to alcohol. A direction for people of any age and any gender. Instead of using their speech to slander others and speak maliciously, Paul wants to see older women teaching what is good. Specifically, Paul notes their responsibility to guide younger women. From verse 4, Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. As a role model to three girls, uh, some of the things that I have tried to teach them over the years include things like uh, how to be hospitable when having friends over, how to be modestly dressed, especially when they were teenagers, uh, or being inclusive with their friends and going to the birthday party that they accepted to first, especially when a, a more exciting opportunity came along later. And then also teaching them how to be generous um, with others with what they had. Titus has implications for how I live now, even if not all of it is directly relevant to my exact circumstances. I may not have a husband or children, but I have a whole family in my household to love, and I still need to be kind and self-controlled and to be productive and busy in how I live my life. We're called to be self-controlled because we have been set free. We no longer have to give in to the temptations of the flesh. There are so many good resources on this, but I've just started a book this week called How to Break Up with Your Phone, which thankfully is not an e-book. Paul moves on to the next group from verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Paul encourages young men to be self-controlled. As a young man, I can understand why this is such an important instruction to heed. Personally for myself, this manifests in a few ways. 
For example, arguing for the sake of arguing, whether that be with friends or with family, as well as serving too much food, whether it be on dinner or lunch, and not leaving enough for the rest of my family. Finally, Paul has some directions for slaves. Reading from verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. The rise of Christianity has created a social problem in Crete. When we belong to Christ, we are equals with one another. So what if the master and slave have both become Christians? It seems like some Christian slaves were not obeying their Christian masters, but instead Paul says that becoming a Christian shouldn't make someone less dependable in their work, but more dependable. So, uh, at my job, I don't have a lot of close supervision, and I realised really early on that it would be really easy to cut corners, uh, to take long lunch breaks, uh, and to speak badly about people. But I realised that even though my supervisors can't see me, Jesus still can. And so if I want to be a good representative of Jesus, I've got to be someone who has integrity and good character. Paul's directions to slaves should impact our own work ethic as employees. But I hope Paul's teaching sits a little uncomfortably with you here. Why doesn't he just abolish slavery? For that matter, why does Paul seem to reinforce the status quo so much through this passage? Why does he just focus on our conduct, on our character? Why doesn't Paul call for more radical transformation? Where's the revolution? To that, I think Paul might respond, what if your transformation was just the beginning? Paul gives us three reasons for why he is calling for this kind of transformation. Number one, Paul wants each of us to live transformed lives because it's for this very reason that Christ died. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Our transformation, slow as it might seem sometimes, lacklustre as it might seem sometimes, is an expression of our salvation. It's a demonstration to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ, a people that are his very own. What if your transformation was just the beginning? What if it wasn't just for you? What if it was for Jesus Christ himself? Number two, Paul wants us to each live transformed lives because our transformation helps other believers. Did you notice earlier in the passage how older men and older women were to be examples to younger men and younger women? 
just like the teachers and influences from chapter 1. God's vision for a Christian community is one of interconnectedness, of mutual responsibility and positive influence. As you slowly grow in your transformation to be more like Christ, you're guiding, encouraging, challenging and empowering other believers to do the same. What if your transformation was just the beginning? What if instead of it just being for you, it was for your faith community too? Number three, Paul wants us each to live transformed lives because our transformation can impact people who aren't yet believers too. As he gives directions to different groups, Paul explains the purpose of this way of life. Verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. God wants us to understand that we are ambassadors of Christ. We represent him to the world. Our behaviour, our conduct, our transformation can either make the good news about Jesus plausible or implausible, attractive or unattractive. Our small, often lacklustre transformation could aid someone else in moving from death to life. That's what's at stake here. What if your transformation was just the beginning? Paul's confidence in the gospel's power to bring lasting transformation is why he doesn't immediately outright ban slavery. He's not advocating for political or cultural revolution. Cultural revolutions cannot transform the heart. The same problems of greed and mistreatment of others would continue even if he tried to abolish slavery at this point. Cultural revolutions can't transform the heart. But heart revolutions can transform the culture. Paul wants people to know Jesus Christ, to know the truth of the gospel, to have their hearts transformed so that then their lives their families, their workplaces, their society might be transformed too. What if your transformation was just the beginning? To wrap up, I had a couple of questions for our Titus team. Questions that I'd like you to be asking yourself as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, first, how, why did the truth of the gospel end up transforming you. I used to think that the Bible was just a massive rule book, but instead I realised that it's a story of a collection of sinners who fall short of God's perfect justice. Once I read the gospels and understood the death of Jesus, I understood why we need to respond to that. And from then on, my perspective changed. My testimony can be summed up in three words. Instability, people and purpose. And what truths are in the gospel that have led me from instability to purpose? It's that God has a plan. That God will use my skills for his purpose and for his kingdom. As a teenager, I was striving, working hard to do the right thing at school, at home, at youth. 
And I took that into my relationship with God too, thinking that I had to work hard to please Him. But it is God's grace that saves me. There is nothing that I can do to be deserving of or to earn God's mercy and His grace. I have to rest entirely on what Jesus did for me in dying on the cross and rising again. And now I can rest secure in who I am as a daughter of Christ. While I still work to do good, it is because he has already accomplished my salvation. Christ's call isn't one of meaningless wandering, uh, but purposeful direction. Um, We're given the means and the motivation to change the world, but we just need to accept that call and really embrace it, not half-heartedly, but grip it with both hands. How did the gospel transform me? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, but what really struck me was one day when I was at the Katoomba Youth Convention uh, was that I could not rely on the faith of my family. I needed to go know God personally and accept that Jesus loved me uh, and died for me to save me from my sins. I needed my own personal relationship with God and to work out how he was going to use me to further his kingdom. A second question. Knowing that Christ does the work of transforming, he's the one that transforms us, but knowing too that we're called to be a part of this transformation. How are you being an active participant in your own transformation? One of my favourite quotes on Christian transformation is from C.S. Lewis. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues and there's a rumour going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. We need to be active in our transformation. We need to be putting ourselves around the right people and in the right places to allow this to happen. The things I do to help achieve this is being part of the St Matt's community as well as reading the Bible every day before work. I still have a long way to go despite my age, but I do self-reflect as a means of reviewing uh, and growing. I'm really quite shy and I tend to hold back a bit. I think back to situations and I think about what I could have said or could have done better. So next time, if the situation arises, I don't hold back and I respond and act instinctively. Prayer is a big way that I think God transforming me and that I can partner with God in my transformation. At night, I write my prayers down in a journal, which slows me down to consider whether what I am praying is in line with God's will and with his character and gradually shaping my desires to be his desires. And when my own prayers feel lacking, I turn to collections of prayer like Valley of Vision and Every Moment Holy. I try and be an active participant in the transformation by being intentional with my Christian friends, whether that be sending them a Bible verse at the end of each day, catching up with them to read the Bible each week, or praying whilst going to walk with them. It's easy for Christians to be mates of other Christians and not really centre a relationship on Jesus. But when friends showed me the power of intentionality, I understood that it's such a useful tool in the transformation. What if your transformation really was just the beginning? What if letting God transform your character and partnering with him in that process really could impact the people around you? Through your transformation, what might God do in your family and then through your family?
What might he do in your friends and then through your friends? What might he do in your workplace and through your workplace? What might he do in our church family and then through our church family? Could our neighbourhood change? Could society shift? Could the dead live? What if your transformation was just the beginning? Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Bend Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.